Hello, and welcome to Riffs on Riffs. I'm Joe Watson. I'm here with my co-host, Toby Braswell. <laughs> What's up, my man? Man, enjoying life and still feeling the high of being back in the booth with you and talking riffs on riffs and music. Man, this is wonderful. Yes. Tell me about it. All right. Well, it's definitely a relief to be back recording live and not just Memorex, which is a reference only folks of a certain age will even understand. No, I'm pretty sure you have no idea what Memorex is. What's Memorex? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I'm just happy that we get to discuss music. And as we mentioned in our last episode, this season, things will be a little bit different. This episode is part two of a four-part miniseries about the band 24 Karat Black and their musical legacy. So our listeners might be asking themselves, why are we focusing on a group from the 70s for four episodes? Now, I swear to Pod that Riffs on Riffs is all about transparency. And I'm here to give you reasons. Okay, let's count them. Preach. Diggable Planets. Eric B. and Rakim, mm. The RZA, Kendrick. These are all the artists that have sampled 24 Karabai. These are not even all the artists. These are some, some. of the artists. A smattering, if you it's will. A, right. A smidgen. Smidgen. Oh, that's a you like that? scope. like that? That's <laughs> that have all sampled 24 Karat Black's work. Now, in the words of Little Kim, shall I proceed? Um, mm-hmm. Yes. You like that? Yeah. All right, who else? You, you said we've just scratched the surface. We're going to continue the S theme. So who else we got? Busta Rhymes, mm-hmm. Kanye West, and Jay-Z. Never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. To be fair, that is quite a list. You know, there's an old saying, and I'll update it for today's sensibilities. Behind every great person is, well, a great person. And the genius behind the people that comprise 24 Karat Black as a man by the name of Dale Warren. In the first episode, we discussed the bands originally known as the Italians that would become 24 Karat Black, as well as author Zach Schoenfeld and what inspired him to write his book, Ghetto, Misfortune's Wealth. For this episode, we want to dig in a bit on Dale Warren's dream, see what a day in the life of the band was like, and revisit the second coming of 24 Karat Black. But before we get into all of that, let's start at the beginning. It was all a dream. Of biggie proportions, right? The story sounds juicy. The dream we are referring to is that of Dale Warren. But let's be clear. Creatives have a lot of dreams, high hopes, and aspirations. But it takes a special type of person to communicate that dream to others so that they can feel it and get it on the bandwagon to make the dream a reality. Now, 24 Karat Black vocalist Niambi still spoke about how Dale sold her on the dream for 24 Karat Black. The dream was to create this vision of Mr. Warren's where the music was a revolution. He was very passionate. And I don't know if you ever just sat and listened to that album, but those lyrics and that sentiment, I was a welfare mother. So, you know, all of that really meant something. Food stamps, I stole my food stamps to get there. So I, I, I identified with this movement and he was like, you just don't know, 24 Karat Black is going to be around for your children's children's children. That is an exact quote. And, you know, my kids were babies, so it was like my children's children's children. Biggie dreams indeed. 
your children's children's children. That's that's something uh, akin to what my man Andre Benjamin said. Forever, forever, ever, forever, ever. It certainly sounds like something you'd hear like in vacation Bible school. I mean, who could blame Niambi for thinking that this was her big shot to stardom? Given her situation in life, this was a huge step toward realizing her dream to be in the business and becoming a star. Well, Niambi uprooted her entire life to go chase that dream. And as she says in her own words, she was hooked. So I had like a certain time to go back home and give up my uh, project apartment, which I did. I gave up my project apartment. I gave a lot of my things to a couple of my friends. And I had to tell my mom and she was like, what are you talking about? You got kids. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, I'm going to make it. You know, I got this chance. Who are these people? It's like, they're from Stax Records. You know, so I'm just trying to tell people. And they're like, you're leaving town? Are you serious? Yep, I'm leaving. They gave me the music and they gave me the album and they gave me the story. You know, after, after he told me that I was in, then they sat me down and told me all about 24 Karat Black and what the dream was. And I got hooked on the dream. All right, Toby, you think it's better to be hooked on a dream or hooked on a feeling? That's a really good question. I think it's better to be hooked on a dream. Now, with a dream, you know, you make plans, and those plans can lead to taking strategic action, which can lead to success. Now, it's not guaranteed, but it's what we creatives like to call a calculated risk. Hmm. So you're saying being hooked on a feeling can be a little bit more impulsive and Maybe a little bit riskier. Well, exactly. Now, being hooked on a feeling can be fleeting at times. You can make a decision based on a song that you heard or a meal that you ate. Now, I'd hate to make a decision that has lifelong repercussions based on the fact that the food that you ate kind of gave you flatulations. Did you just bust out flatulation? I did. First time on the Riffs show, on the first program. Yes. All right. Maybe don't make big life decisions after eating those dietary onions. And here I was about to... How to new slogan. Hmm. Ready? Yes. When life gives you baked beans, propel yourself forward. So you should have said toot a new slogan, not tout. <laughs> <laughs> well played, my friend. Well played. <laughs> well, of course, I'm, I'm joking. But I think you get my point. In my opinion, being hooked on a feeling is like being married after one good date. Ooh. Now, there's a lot of TV shows that that happens, but it's, it's, not, supposed <laughs> it's not supposed to work that way. It's not supposed way. to happen like that. And being hooked on a dream is like being married after several years of courtship. The ups, the downs. Just my opinion, of course. But, you know, how do you feel about that? Honestly, I was kind of just hoping for like a B.J. Thomas or Blue Swede reference or maybe some like, ooga, chaka, ooga, ooga, right? Like mm-hmm. I was I was just singing some hook down a feeling, but whatever. I'm down. I'm mm-hmm. always, you know me, I'm always down for philosophical musings. I would actually say they work in tandem, right? So getting hooked on the feeling leads to getting hooked on the dream. And if you're really lucky, it kind of becomes this self-feeding loop. And the feelings actualize into the dream, which leads to more feelings. Then one day you wake up and realize, hey, I'm living the dream and it feels good. Hmm, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Regardless, we know that sacrifices were made for the dream to come to fruition. One that comes to mind is time spent, and you already talked about it in the last episode, practicing. So we talked about how much control Dale Warren exerted on the group. Both vocalists, Princess Hearn and Niambi Steele, stated Warren controlled practices 
if it was a military exercise. For the sake of a different perspective, let's hear from Jerome Derrickson, who was a musician in the horn section of the group. Can we talk a little bit about the music? Sure. So was it all of Dale's stuff and you were just told to play things or did you have any creative license? Well, we, we all had input, but Dale basically put the foundation down. You know, he gave us the foundation and everybody just kind of collaborated on it. The horn players, we collaborated on horn parts. The rhythm section, they did the exact same. But Dale basically gave us the foundation or the platform to build on. For some of those instrumental tracks, did you have room to improv and and kind of go with it? Not that much. No? Yeah, we just kept the tracks just pretty straightforward. There were a few sax solos, but other than that, it was just pretty much straightforward. If you listen to the album, you don't hear too many solos that the musicians did, like keyboard solos or anything like that, you know? No. Just kept it straight. The reason I think it's so important to bring in another voice and one of a non-vocalist is so you can get a consensus of what the vibe was like working with Dale. The consensus was Dale was tough. He had the vision and didn't want anyone veering left or right from his vision of what the music should sound like. This was his baby. And just like all proud parents, he wanted to see his baby grow and prosper. But, you know, sometimes things don't turn out the way you want them to. What initially started off as a quest to become a physician ended up becoming a bachelor's degree in criminology. Don't even get me started on the different majors in between. You know, I like to think that means you're just multidimensional with a wide range of talents, diverse interests. You know, nobody puts baby in a corner and nobody puts Toby in a box. Where were you when I was trying to explain this to my parents? I know, right? Where were (laughs) you? Now, actually, you're one to talk, my friend. I mean, you're, no one can put you in a box either. Uh, you know, yeah, you're multifaceted for sure. Let me ask you this question. You've written songs before, and I know our producer Noah has as well. Now, are you the type to think of a musical idea and then after creating it, just pitch it if it's not what you envisioned originally? Or are you like the pack rat type that keeps everything thinking there might be something, you know, some use for it later on? Why, yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> That's not an answer. The Mission Impossible self-destruct type or the pack rack type. You have to kind of pick a lane. Which lane are you going in? Well, see, that's the problem. I'm, I'm like Donnie and Marie, combined all at the same time. Oh, I see. We're going with some dated references here that only folks of a certain age, you're a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. Yeah, see? You got <laughs> it. All right, first off, anyone who knows me will roll their eyes at how indecisive I can be. It's kind of maddening sometimes, but there are plenty of times where I know exactly what I want or think should happen, and I can act quite decisively. With music that I've created, eh, you know, I'll save it for a while. It's easy to keep things in this digital age, not like back in the Memorex days. But after it sits for a bit, I'll reopen it and I'll give it a spin. And if it doesn't grab me, which is just kind of a nice way of saying, if it sucks, I'll pitch it without really giving it a second thought in part because I don't want anyone finding my old, unreleased tracks and subjecting unsuspecting souls to their awfulness. Though I haven't quite gone the Anderson Pock route. No tattoo for you? No, no. It's a cool idea. He has a tattoo on his arm that reads, When I'm gone, please don't release any posthumous albums or songs with my name attached. Those were just demos and never intended to be heard by the public. Anyway, like we mentioned earlier, songs and other types of creative projects can be similar to raising kids. You just do the best you can, not knowing how things are going to turn out in the end. 
And in both cases, if they go out into the world and they bring joy to people, well, you know what? You've done your job. I will say that I'm glad that as we head into our phase of elder statesmanship— Oh, I like that. You like Are we that? elder statesmen? A- elder nice. statesmen. Sounds distinguished. Well, just elder by itself, you know. No, no. statesman. Yeah. Got, you're, you're right. They got to be combined. They got to be right. combined. My bet. <laughs> Entering our phase of of being elder statesmen, we are both embracing these multifaceted parts as a blessing. Well, multifaceted is also a really good word to describe the Ghetto Misfortunes Wealth album. Unfortunately, due to exorbitant licensing fees and legal rigmarole, we can't play any of the album on this podcast. Oh, the irony. You can listen to the lifted samples on a plethora of tracks from a veritable who's who of hip-hop royalty, but... You know, we can't play a three-second snippet for our listeners to enjoy. Well, thankfully, the entire album is available on all streaming platforms, and we will also add it to our Spotify playlist. Just do a search for Riffs on Riffs. But since you and I have listened to the album a ton, besides multifaceted, how else would you describe Ghetto Misfortunes Wealth? Man, you know, I think it's... I really think it's mission accomplished for Dale in 24 Karat Black, right? So he set out to tell the story of the ghetto, and he succeeds in painting a very vivid picture. It's intense, it's thought-provoking, it's spacious, and it actually, in some places, really joyous. You have the slow building burn of songs like Mother's Day, where, wow, Princess's vocals just literally give me chills. There's this ironically upbeat staccato funk of instrumental tracks like Food Stamps and Brown Baggin. There's the gut-wrenching angst of Poverty's Paradise. Kind of, look, the album runs the gamut but all of it lays on this foundation of power. And so it's calling attention to the reality of the ghetto with all the sadness and inequality that encompasses. But I don't think it's a coincidence the album ends with this powerful instrumental 24 karat black theme. This is an album that asks the hard questions and then it looks you sternly in the eye waiting for the answer. Well, that's that's what I think. What are some of your thoughts? Well, I totally agree with you. You know, back in the day, someone told me the difference between a job and a profession is that a job oftentimes doesn't make as significant impact on society, whereas a profession calls for specialized training that might even require a certification or a license. Listening to this album illustrated the creative license that Warren has and his willingness to flex his musical prowess and ask those hard questions you mentioned. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! So for many reasons that we'll get into, the album never achieved commercial success. We asked Princess her thoughts on why, and here's what she had to say. And now the world is ready for this album because it was really before its time, the concept of the album. It was before its time, but ironically, it just seems like it's right on time now with the day and times that we're living. 
I think Princess's point was valid, both in that the album could be looked at as being ahead of its time, and that the same problems that faced the world back then seem to be the greatest hits of the things that plague society today. Now, in our interview, you asked band member Jerome Derrickson about the album's lack of success and teed up the idea of song length. And let's revisit that interview and get Jerome's response. I think if we had the company behind us or some money behind us, we would have got a lot more traction. So you don't think it was the songs, it wasn't the content, it wasn't you were before your time? It's just marketing. Yeah, we didn't have proper marketing to launch the launch the project. They'll launch that project out of his pocket with the hopes of getting the backing of Stax Records after the record launched and kind of, you know, took off a little bit. Unfortunately, Stax was going through some things that we were not aware of, management was not aware of, and Dale didn't share with the management team until, you know, down toward the end. And he was using his personal money, so, you know, it only went so far. So if he was using his money to fund the project, no one can say that he didn't believe in it. And what's interesting is the difference in opinion between Jerome and Princess. I wanted to focus on the one made by Princess. Was this project ahead of its time? That is a Great question. Look, I know you did some research on the origins of the first concept album. And of course, there's always some debate on that. But it appears that Woody Guthrie's 1940 release, Dust Bowl Ballads, or Frank Sinatra's 46 album, the voice of Frank Sinatra, would fit that bill. Other popular concept albums include Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by The Beatles, released in 1967, and David Bowie's The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars from 1972. These are some crazy real. I got more for you. Ready? Please. How about the 68 Kinks album? The Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society. Oh. Uh-huh. I'm just, look, I'm just glad it wasn't the Soylent Green Preservation Society because Soylent Green is people, Toby. Mm. It's people. And you shouldn't eat people. You shouldn't. Ever. Ever. Always looking to provide public service announcements here on Riff. what we do. Okay, that's what we do for Riff Nation. We do this for you. And remember, only you can prevent forest fires. Okay, on the real, can you imagine trying to put some of these titles on a shirt? Now, I didn't mention it earlier, but that tattoo that Anderson yeah. Pack had, that is a long tattoo. It's a long That's a tattoo. lot of words. Yeah. And so are some of these album titles. Ridiculous. Doesn't make any sense. Some of these album titles should have been included in our discussion as the worst band names ever. Yeah. Granted that these aren't the title of bands, but some of these titles are just that bad. And take your mind certainly on a trip. I'm wondering if people were on a trip. Oh, totally tripping. Totally tripping. When they when they create, okay. I mean, Ziggy Stardust and the yeah, stop Martians it. from whatever. Stop right? It. Like, I'm not a big Bowie guy, but. All right. So before we move on with our conversation, I did want to pose a question in regards to something that Jerome spoke to. The marketing. I've been thinking about that, and we're saying that maybe with marketing, it could have been more successful. It got me thinking about how I would market this album using today's technology. Oh, boy. All right. I cannot wait. Please, Toby, tell me how you would market this album. (laughs) I mean, obviously, we use the power of the social web. Sure. LinkedIn. Yes. The YouTube. The YouTube. The Facebook. Oh, bringing a little multiverse. I like it. Okay. And the power of the Twitter. Okay, I get it, right? The TikToks and the Tic Tacs and the Skittles and whatever. But what else are you bringing to the table to make this album a smash success? I'm so glad that you asked. Yes. Okay. Since it's a concept album, I would propose that we chat with one Mr. Lin-Manuel Miranda. Oh, wow. To bring the concept album to life on stage. 
I really, I didn't see that. Was uh, that was a turn? Mm-hmm. You know, he's certainly a man with the golden pen and voice. And heck, I'm pretty sure his entire brain is just gilded in gold filigree. But there is a big problem with this. You don't want to take the shot. <laughs> we, <laughs> we don't talk about Lin Manuel. No, no. Do you like that? I do. But, you know, if we were able to get the Miranda rights, you, you see what Ooh, I did there, too? Yeah. There you go. Who knows how far we'll go. Mm, mm. And, you know, if you didn't throw away your shot, all I can say is, you're welcome. Mm. So, yeah, having his name associated with your album would certainly allow your project to travel anywhere around the globe. Speaking of which... Have I ever told you my U-Haul story? <laughs> I am so interested. No, you have a U-Haul story? Yeah. Okay, but hit me, please. So this is, uh, <laughs> we're going back to the college days, right? And we're down driving to Florida, I think. We're coming back. So driving with my buddy Brett, he's got this white Nissan Sentra, which does not even have power steering, right? Oh, no. Yeah, it's oh, great. No. Well, the other thing that it didn't have, because he neglected to put it in the car, was oil. Oh, God. It's a really bad idea for a car. Oh. So we're driving along, just two of us, and there goes the engine. You know, sounds like a cannon being shot. Sure. He's taking this power steering list car, trying to get it off the highway. Right? It was bad. So we're in the middle of Tennessee, Toby. Middle of Tennessee. Mm, mm, Some mm. very nice gentleman pulls up with his pickup, and he's, he's like, you know, Lord told me that I could be of service to somebody today. And I saw you two boys sitting by the side of the road and I just had to stop. And we were both like, this is amazing. And also this is terrifying. Right. Right. But we got in this guy's truck and he's like, you were walking the wrong way. You got, uh, you know, you probably got eight miles. If you kept going this way, I'm going to take you with, you know, the next exit, whatever. They bring out the tow truck, tow a car back and the mechanic looks at it. He's like, oh, she slung a rod. And we're like, what, what? Well, yeah, what do you say? Right. It, it, Busted a rod, like the engine shot. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, He's yeah. like, we can uh, we can get a new engine for you in about three days. It'll cost you, you know, twelve hundred bucks, whatever it is. Ooh. So this is pre cell phone. Our other buddies are in a different car. We're supposed to meet up at the at the Smokies and go hiking. All of this. No, I'll fast forward to the U-Haul part, right? So we're now there's no hotel rooms in Cleveland, Tennessee, because there's a convention of some kind. So he's calling his dad. His dad's coming down. We spend like three days there. First night. Sitting there, looking at the old Waffle House next to the gas station in his car, listening to another great concept album, Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. You know, we <laughs> just see this, this truck pulls in. This guy gets out, chucks a fifth of whiskey, like empty, right in the lawn. And then the woman in the passenger seat gets out and chucks another fifth, and they just stumble in the Waffle House. We just looked at each other like, wow. This is our life. This is our life. This is where we are. Now, at. the gas station guy was nice enough. He was like, this is the U-Haul part, right? It's like, hey— I know you don't have a place. You can, we rent U-Hauls because, of course, that's what you do in Cleveland, Tennessee. Right. You all sleep in the back. Wow. Just uh, do me a favor. It's not the best part of town, so you might want to close the door most of the way so that if somebody comes sneaking up Stop on it. you, you'll hear the door open. Stop. <laughs> right. And we're like, oh, you, you, Sir, you sound like this has happened before. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't, we weren't sleeping real well, right? Well, apparently, we must have fallen asleep at some point because uh, 5 o'clock in the morning, the truck starts up. No! It's pulling out of the... No. Yes. With y'all in the back. With us in the back. We're banging on the cabin, right? And the guy, you know, stops the truck, mile down, whatever. And he's like, what are you called? He had no idea. And we're like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm just, I'm on my way to Arizona. No, you're not. Yeah. Yep. So 
we uh, thankfully made enough of a ruckus that we did not take another detour to the other half of the country. And that trip kind of went from there. So I have spent a night in the back of U-Haul, but thankfully I did not have to take the lengthy voyage that 24 Karat Black did on a regular basis. So yeah, that's uh, that's my U-Haul stories. But let's hear from Niambi because I think she's <laughs> oh my got some God. good stories. After all that, yeah, let's hear from Niambi. Let's get back on track. Thank God you you got back on track. Let's hear what Naomi had to say. My God. Well, let's see. We had a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> it sure sounds like it. I'll start from bad, bad to good. So at one point, we were traveling and we had a bunch of cars. So we were like a convoy almost. And then somehow or another, I can't remember why, then all of us ended up in the back of a U-Haul with the smoke, with the exhaust coming in, the uh, roll-up door, we had to hold it open. I hear that's really good for your vocal cords. It makes you forget you have vocal cords. (laughs) As you might imagine, when you throw a bunch of young people together for an extended period of time, living, eating, and performing together, some, let's just call it fraternization, okay, was bound to happen. And it sounds like there were some interesting pairings that came out of that. And here's Niambi again. Well, it was a joke because the whole thing, <laughs> the whole thing when we had band meetings was like, there is no fraternization in this band. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everybody has somebody, okay? Some of us had two, three, four, who cares, you know? <laughs> because, you know, once Mr. Warren disappeared into his room, we didn't have to worry about him. Princess was taking care of all that. You know, we were on our own, basically. We even had a couple of girls. We started playing in Alabama, and they were lady wrestlers. Really? Yeah, they decided they liked the bass player and the guitar player. They followed us all over Alabama. And here's how Princess summed it all up. You know, that was back in an era, I think, where everybody was trying to be free with hippies and, you know... It was about love and being free and getting naked and smoking weed. (laughs) We toured, we drove from California back to Cincinnati. But it was like an adventure. You know, we weren't in a hurry. We was on a little Volkswagen camper. We just took our time and drove through the oasis and just, it was awesome. It was an awesome experience. I'm not going to knock my experience that I had with Dale even though it turned out to be a, a, a R. Kelly situation. As I look back, like, <laughs> you know, I was just one of, <laughs> I was just one of many. And I guess everybody played a part in his tapestry. I will never look at the word tapestry the same way ever <laughs> again, okay? It means something completely different. When I hear tapestry, I'm going to be thinking of things along the lines of when Jada said entanglements. Oh, man. You gotta love transparency, I'm just saying. Okay, well, that's one thing we haven't talked much about, really, is the fact that Dale and Princess ended up getting married. Mm. And there's honestly some question as to whether Princess was even 18 at the time. Regardless, Dale was over a decade older, and they certainly had a tumultuous relationship. In our interviews, Princess talked about Dale's jealousy and his womanizing, 
Ironic how they go together sometimes. Now, what's also interesting is that in my mind, jealousy is about insecurity and about trying to exert control over another. Now, we've heard already how Dale wanted control over everything musical, but it didn't stop there, apparently. Dale was a complicated figure, and she knew that better than anyone. You know else was a bit complicated? Hmm. Elvis. Hmm. And 24 Karat Black got to hang with the King and other Stax artists, and it was a memorable experience. But I do remember meeting Elvis and we got in his car, you know. We were meeting all of the uh, Stax artists, you know. We were going in the dressing room with the barcades and and Ike and Tina Turner. They had all this fur and everything in there. Everybody's dressing room was unique. You know, it was real personal to the group. And it was really exciting. They all had some connections, you know. He was was always upscale, you know. He was a brilliant, very smart, intelligent, black, talented man, I think. Like I say, he didn't have any common sense. Speaking of common sense, he's one of my favorite MCs. They say listening to his music is always a good way to start the show. Oh, so apropos for you to testify to the people of Shy City and beyond. I'm just glad we got a chance to plan this chat about the band. It's a resurrection oh, of 24 Karat Black and their legacy. Okay, my friend. Common sense tells oh. me that we have run out of time <laughs> for this episode, but there's still so much to the 24 Karat Black story. What can we look forward to in the next episode? We will learn how the demise of Stax Records significantly impacted the band. We'll also talk about the second incarnation of 24 Karat Black and how O.J. Simpson's acting debut played a large role in keeping the band afloat. We will hear more stories from the band members about the end of 24 Karat Black and what came next in their lives and careers. So be sure to tune in next time. There's some incredible, never-before-heard stories that were shared. Until then... Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time for Riffs on Riffs. I'm Joe Watson. And I'm Toby Braswell. Keep listening. Huzzah. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.